Book seven of the Memoirs of Chateaubriand, Volume four. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nicole Lee. The Memoirs of Chateaubriand, Volume four, by François René de Chateaubriand, translated by Alexander Teixeira de Matos. Book seven. To fall back from Bonaparte and the Empire to that which followed them is to fall from reality into nothingness from the summit of a mountain into a gulf did not everything finish with napoleon ought i to have spoken of anything else what person can possess any interest beside him of whom and of what can there be any question after such a man dante alone had the right to associate himself with the great poets whom he meets in the regions of another life how can one speak of louis the eighteenth in the stead of the emperor I blush when I think that, at the present moment, I have to cant about a crowd of petty creatures, of whom I myself am one, dubious and nocturnal beings that we were, on a stage from which the great sun had disappeared. The Bonapartists themselves had shrivelled up. Their members had become bent and shrunk. The soul was lacking to the new universe, so soon as Bonaparte withdrew his breath. Objects faded from view from the moment when they were no longer illuminated by the light which had given them colour and relief. At the commencement of these memoirs, I had only myself to speak of. Well, there is always a sort of paramountcy in man's individual solitude. Later, I was surrounded by miracles. Those miracles kept up my voice. But at this present moment, there is no more conquest of Egypt, no more battles of Marengo, Austerlitz and Jena no more retreat from russia no more invasion of france capture of paris return from elba battle of waterloo funeral at st helena what remains portraits to which only the genius of moliere could lend the gravity of comedy while expressing myself upon our worthlessness i taxed my conscience home i asked myself whether i did not purposely incorporate myself with the nullity of these times in order to acquire the right to condemn the others persuaded though i were in petto that my name would be read in the midst of all these obliterations no i am convinced that we shall all fade out first because we have not in us the wherewithal to live secondly because the age in which we are commencing or ending our days has itself not the wherewithal to make us live generations mutilated exhausted disdainful faithless consecrated to the annihilation which they love are unable to bestow immortality they have no power to create a renown if you were to nail your ear to their mouth you would hear nothing no sound issues from the heart of the dead one thing strikes me however the little world to which i am now coming was superior to the world which succeeded it in eighteen thirty we were giants in comparison with the society of maggots that has engendered itself the restoration offers at least one point in which we can find importance after the dignity of one man, that man having passed, there was born again the dignity of mankind. If despotism has been replaced by liberty, if we understand anything of independence, if we have lost the habit of grovelling, if the rights of human nature are no longer disregarded, we owe these things to the restoration. Wherefore also I threw myself into the fray, in order as far as I could, to revive the species when the individual had come to an end. Come! let us pursue our task let us descend with a groan to myself and my colleagues you have seen me amid my dreams you are about to see me in my realities if the interest decreases if i fall reader be just 
make allowance for my subject after the second return of the king and the final disappearance of bonaparte the ministry being in the hands of monsieur le duc d'autrante and monsieur le prince de talleyrand i was appointed president of the electoral college of the department of the loire the elections of eighteen fifteen gave the king the chambre introuvable i was carrying all the votes at orleans when i received the order which called me to the house of peers my active career had hardly commenced when it suddenly changed its course what would it have been if i had been sent to the elective chamber it is fairly probable that that career would in the event of my success have ended in the ministry of the interior instead of taking me to the ministry of foreign affairs my habits and manners were more in touch with the peerage and although the latter became hostile to me from the first moment by reason of my liberal opinions it is nevertheless certain that my doctrines concerning the liberty of the press and against the vassalage to foreigners gave the noble chamber the popularity which it enjoyed so long as it suffered my opinions i received at my entrance the only honour which my colleagues ever did me during my fifteen years residence in their midst i was appointed one of the four secretaries for the session of eighteen sixteen lord byron met with no more favour when he appeared in the house of lords and he left it for good i ought to have returned to my deserts my first appearance in the tribune was to make a speech on the irremovability of the judges i applauded the principle but censured its immediate application at the revolution of eighteen thirty the members of the left who were most devoted to that revolution wished to suspend the irremovability for a time on the twenty second of february eighteen sixteen the duc de richelieu brought us the autograph will of the queen i ascended the tribune and said he who has preserved for us the will of marie antoinette had bought the property of montboissier himself one of louis says judges he raised in that property a monument to the memory of the defender of louis says and himself engraved on that monument an epitaph in french verse in praise of monsieur de Malzerbe. this astonishing impartiality shows that all is misplaced in the moral world on the twelfth of march eighteen sixteen the question of the ecclesiastical pensions was discussed you would i said refuse an allowance to the poor vicar who devotes the remainder of his days to the altar and you would accord pensions to joseph le bon who struck off so many heads to francois chabot who asked for a law against the emigrants of so simple a character that a child might lead them to the guillotine to jacques roux who refusing at the temple to receive louis xvi's will replied to the unfortunate monarch my only business is to take you to your death a bill had been introduced into the hereditary chamber relating to the elections i declared myself in favour of the integral renewal of the chamber of deputies it was not until eighteen twenty four being then a minister that i passed it into law it was also in this first speech on the law governing elections in eighteen sixteen that i said in reply to an opponent i will not refer to what has been said about europe watching our discussions speaking for myself gentlemen i doubtless owe to the french blood that flows in my veins the impatience which i experience when in order to influence my vote people talk to me of opinions existing outside my country and if civilized europe tried to impose the charter on me i should go to live in constantinople on the ninth of april eighteen sixteen i introduced a motion to the chamber relating to the barbary powers the house decided that there was cause for its discussion i was already thinking of combating slavery before i obtained that favourable decision from the peers which was the first political intervention of a great power on behalf of the greeks i have seen the ruins of carthage i said to my colleagues i have met among those ruins the successors of the unhappy christians for whose deliverance st louis sacrificed his life 
philosophy can take its share of the glory attached to the success of my motion and boast of having obtained in an age of light that for which religion strove in vain in an age of darkness i found myself in an assembly in which my words for three-fourths of the time turned against myself one can move a popular chamber an aristocratic chamber is deaf with no gallery speaking in private before old men dried-up remains of the old monarchy of the revolution and of the empire anything that rose above the most commonplace seemed madness one day the front row of armchairs quite close to the tribune was filled with venerable peers one more deaf than the other their heads bent forward and holding to their ears a trumpet with the mouth turned towards the tribune i sent them to sleep which is very natural one of them dropped his ear-trumpet his neighbour awakened by the fall wanted politely to pick up his colleague's trumpet he fell down the worst of it was that i began to laugh although i was just then speaking pathetically on some subject of humanity i forget what the speakers who succeeded in that chamber were those who spoke without ideas in a level and monotonous tone or who found terms of sensibility only in order to melt with pity for the poor ministers m de lally tollendal thundered in favour of the public liberties he made the vaults of our solitude resound with the praises of three or four english lord chancellors his ancestors he said when his panegyric of the liberty of the press was finished came a but based upon circumstances which but left our honour safe under the useful supervision of the censorship the restoration gave an impulse to men's minds it set free the thought suppressed by bonaparte the intellect like a caryatic figure relieved of the entablature that bent its brow lifted up its head the empire had struck france with dumbness liberty restored touched her and gave her back speech oratorical talents existed which took up matters where the mirabeaus and casales had left them and the revolution continued its course my labours were not limited to the tribune so new to me appalled at the systems which men were embracing and at france's ignorance of the principles of representative government i wrote and had printed the monarchie selon la charte this publication marked one of the great epochs of my political life it made me take rank among the publicists it served to determine opinion on the nature of our government the english papers praised the work to the skies among us the abbe marillet even could not recover from the transformation of my style and the dogmatic precision of the truths the monarchie selon la charte is a constitutional catechism from it have been taken the greater part of the propositions which are put forward as new to-day thus the principle that the king reigns but does not govern is found fully set forth in chapters four five six and seven on the royal prerogative the constitutional principles having been laid down in the first part of the monarchie selon la charte i examined in the second the systems of the three ministries which till then had followed upon one another from eighteen fourteen to eighteen sixteen in this part are brought together predictions too well verified since and expositions of doctrines at that time unperceived these words appear in chapter twenty six in the second part it passes as unquestionable in a certain party that a revolution of the nature of our own can end only by a change of dynasty others more moderate say by a change in the order of right of succession to the crown as i was finishing my work appeared the ordinance of the fifth of september eighteen sixteen this measure dispersed the few royalists assembled to reconstruct the legitimate monarchy i hastened to write the postscript which caused an explosion of anger on the part of monsieur le duc de richelieu and of louis eighteenth's favourite monsieur de caz 
The postscript added, I ran to Monsieur Le Normand, my publishers. On arriving, I found constables and a police commissary making out instruments. They had seized parcels and affixed seals. I had not defied Bonaparte to be intimidated by Monsieur de Caz. I objected to the seizure. I declared that, as a free Frenchman and a peer of France, I would yield only to force. The force arrived, and I withdrew. I went on the 18th of September to Monsieur Louis Martin Meynier and his colleague, notaries royal. I protested in their office and called upon them to register my statement of the fact of the apprehension of my work. Wishing to ensure the rights of French citizens, by means of this protest, Monsieur Baudet followed my example in 1830. I next found myself engaged in a rather long correspondence with Monsieur the Chancellor, Monsieur the Minister of Police, and Monsieur the Attorney-General Bellard, until the 9th of November on which day the Chancellor informed me of the order made in my favour by the Court of First Instance, which placed me in possession of my seized work. In one of his letters, Monsieur the Chancellor told me that he had been distressed to see the dissatisfaction which the King had publicly expressed with my work. This dissatisfaction arose from the chapter in which I stood up against the establishment of a Minister of General Police in a constitutional country. In my account of the journey to Ghent, you have seen Louis XVIII's value as a descendant of Hugh Capet, in my pamphlet, Le Roi est mort, vive le roi, I have told the prince's real qualities. But man is not a simple unit. Why are there so few faithful portraits? Because the model is made to pose at such or such a period of his life. Ten years later, the portrait is no longer like. Louis XVIII did not see far the objects before or around him. All seemed fair or foul to him, according to the way he looked at it. Smitten with his century, it is to be feared that the most Christian king regarded religion only as an elixir, fit for the amalgam of drugs of which royalty is composed. The licentious imagination which he had received from his grandfather might have inspired some distrust of his enterprises, but he knew himself, and when he spoke in a positive manner, he boasted, well knowing it, while laughing at himself. I spoke to him one day of the need of a new marriage for Monsieur le Duc de Bourbon, in order to bring back the race of the Condes to life. He strongly approved of that idea, although he cared very little about the sad resurrection. But in this connection he spoke to me of the Comte d'Artois, and said, My brother might marry again without changing anything in the succession to the throne. He would only make cadets. As for me, I should only make elders. I do not want to disinherit Monsieur le Duc d'Angoulême. And he drew himself up with a capable and bantering air but I had no intention of denying the king any power. Selfish and unprejudiced, Louis the Eighteenth desired his peace of mind at any price. He supported his ministers so long as they held the majority. He dismissed them so soon as the majority was shaken, and his tranquillity liable to be upset. He did not hesitate to fall back when, to obtain the victory, he ought to have taken a step forward. His greatness was patience. He did not go towards events. Events came to him. Without being cruel, the king was not humane. Tragic catastrophes neither astonished nor touched him. He was satisfied with saying to the Duc de Berry, who apologised for having had the misfortune to disturb the king's sleep by his death, I have finished my night. Nevertheless, this quiet man would fly into horrible rages when annoyed, and also this cold, unfeeling prince had attachments which resemble passions. Thus there succeeded each other in his intimacy, the Comte d'Avaray, Monsieur de Blacas, Monsieur de Caz, Madame de Balbi, Madame de Cayla. All these beloved persons were favourites. Unfortunately, they have a great deal too many letters in their hands. Louis the Eighteenth appeared to us in all the profundity of historic tradition. 
he showed himself with the favouritism of the ancient royalties. Does the heart of our isolated monarchs contain a void, which they fill with the first object they light upon? Is it sympathy, the affinity of a nature analogous to their own? Is it a friendship which drops down to them from heaven to console their greatnesses? Is it a leaning for a slave who gives himself body and soul, before whom one conceals nothing, a slave who becomes a garment, a plaything, a fixed idea bound up with all the feelings, all the tastes, all the whims of him whom it has subdued, and whom it holds under the empire of an invincible fascination. The viler and closer a favourite has been, the less easily is he to be dismissed, because he is in possession of secrets which would put one to the blush if they were divulged. The chosen one derives a dual force from his own baseness and his master's weaknesses. When the favourite happens to be a great man, like the besetting Richelieu or the undismissable Mazarin, the nations, while detesting him, profit by his glory or his power. They only change a wretched king de jure for an illustrious king de facto. So soon as Monsieur de Caz was made a minister, the carriages blocked the quay Malaquais in the evenings to set down in the newcomer's drawing-room all that was noblest in the Faubourg Saint-Germain. The Frenchman may do what he pleases, he will never be anything but a courtier, no matter of whom, provided it be a power of the day. Soon there was formed, on behalf of the new favourite, a formidable coalition of stupidities. In democratic society, prate about liberties, declare that you see the progress of the human race and the future of things, adding to your speeches a few crosses of the Legion of Honour, and you are sure of your place. In aristocratic society, play whist, utter commonplaces, and carefully prepared witticisms, with a grave and profound air, and the fortune of your genius is assured. Born a fellow-countryman of Murat, but of Murat without a kingdom, Monsieur de Caz had come to us from the mother of Napoleon. He was familiar, obliging, never insolent. He wished me well. I do not know why. I did not care. Thence came the commencement of my disgraces. That was to teach me that one must never fail in respect to a favourite. The king loaded him with kindnesses and credit, and subsequently married him to a very well-born person, daughter to Monsieur de saint aulaire It is true that Monsieur de Caz served royalty too well. It was he who unearthed Marshal Ney in the mountains of Auvergne, where he had hidden himself. Faithful to the inspirations of his throne, Louis the Eighteenth said of Monsieur de Caz, I shall raise him up so high that the greatest lords will be envious of him. This phrase, borrowed from another king, was a mere anachronism. To raise up others, one must be sure of not descending. Now, at the time when Louis the Eighteenth arrived, what were monarchs? If they could still make a man's fortune, they could no longer make his greatness. They had become merely their favourite's bankers. Madame Princeteau, Monsieur de Caz's sister, was an agreeable, modest and excellent person. The king had fallen in love with her prospectively. Monsieur de Caz, the father, whom I saw in the throne-room in full dress, sword at side, hat under his arm, made no success, however. At last the death of Monsieur le Duc de Berry increased the ill-will on both sides, and brought about the favourite's fall. I have said that his feet slipped in the blood, which does not mean, heaven forbid, that he was guilty of the murder, but that he fell in the reddened pool that formed under Louvel's knife. I had resisted the seizure of the monarchy selon la Charte, to enlighten misled royalty, and to uphold the liberty of thought and of the press. I had frankly embraced our institutions, and I remained loyal to them. These broils over, I remained bleeding from the wounds inflicted on me at the appearance of my pamphlet. I did not take possession of my political career 
without bearing the scars of the blows which i received on entering upon that career i felt ill at ease in it i was unable to breathe shortly afterwards an order countersigned richelieu struck me off the list of ministers of state and i was deprived of a place till then reputed irremovable it had been given me again and the pension attached to that place was withdrawn from me the hand which had taken fouché struck me i have had the honour to be thrice stripped for the legitimacy first for following the sons of st louis into exile the second time for writing in favour of the principles of the monarchy as granted the third for keeping silence on a baleful law at the moment when i had just caused the triumph of our arms the spanish campaign had given back soldiers to the white flag and if i had been kept in power i should have carried back our frontiers to the banks of the rhine my nature made me quite indifferent to the loss of my salary i came off with going on foot again and on rainy days driving to the chamber of peers in a hackney coach in my popular conveyance under the protection of the rabble that surged around me i re-entered into the rights of the proletariat of which i form part from my lofty chariot i looked down upon the train of kings i was obliged to sell my books monsieur merlin put them up to auction at the salle sylvestre in the rue des bons enfants i kept only a little greek homer whose margins were covered with attempts at translation and remarks in my handwriting soon it became necessary to take energetic measures i asked monsieur the minister of the interior for leave to raffle my country house the lottery was opened at the office of monsieur denis notary there were ninety tickets at a thousand francs each the numbers were not taken up by the royalists the dowager madame la duchesse d'orleans took three numbers my friend monsieur lenet the minister of the interior who had countersigned the order of the fifth of september and consented in the council to the striking off of my name took a fourth ticket under a false name the money was returned to the subscribers Monsieur lenet however refused to withdraw his thousand francs he left it with the notary for the poor not long after my valet au loup was sold as they sell the furniture of the poor on the place du chatelet i suffered much by this sale i had become attached to my trees planted and so to speak full-grown in my memories the reserve was fifty thousand francs it was covered by monsieur le vicomte de montmorency who alone dared to bid one hundred francs higher the valet was knocked down to him he has since inhabited my retreat it is not a good thing to meddle with my fortunes that man of virtue is no more after the publication of the monarchie selon la charte and at the opening of the new session in the month of november eighteen sixteen i continued my contests in the house of peers in the sitting of the twenty-third of that month i moved a proposition to the effect that the king be humbly begged to order an investigation into the proceedings at the last elections the corruption and violence of the ministry during those elections were flagrant in giving my opinion on the bill relating to supply twenty first march eighteen seventeen i spoke against clause two of that bill it had to do with the state forests which they proposed to appropriate for the sinking fund in order afterwards to sell one hundred and fifty thousand hectares these forests consisted of three kinds of properties the ancient domains of the crown a few commanderies of the order of malta and the remainder of the goods of the church i do not know why even to-day i find a sad interest in my words they bear some resemblance to my memoirs with all due deference to those who have administered only during our troubles it is not the material security but the ethics of a people that constitute the public credit will the new owners make good the titles of their new property to deprive them there will be quoted to them instances of inheritances of nine centuries taken away from their former possessors 
instead of those inalienable patrimonies in which the same family outlive the race of the oaks you will have unfixed properties in which the reeds will scarcely have time to spring up and die before they change masters the homes will cease to be the guardians of domestic morality they will lose their venerable authority rights of way open to all comers they will no longer be hallowed by the grandfather's chair and the cradle of the new-born child peers of france it is your cause that i am pleading here not mine i am speaking to you in the interest of your children i shall have no concern with posterity i have no sons i have lost my father's fields and a few trees which i have planted will soon cease to be mine because of the resemblance of opinions then very keen an intimacy had been established between the minorities of the two chambers france was learning representative government as i had been foolish enough to take it literally and make a real passion of it to my prejudice i supported those who took it up without troubling my head as to whether their opposition was not prompted by human motives rather than by a pure love like that which i felt for the charter not that i was a simpleton but i idolized my lady-love and would have gone through fire to carry her off in my arms it was during this constitutional attack that i came to know m de villel in eighteen sixteen he was calmer he overcame his ardour he too aimed at conquering liberty but he laid siege to it according to rule he opened the trenches methodically i who wanted to carry the place by assault advanced to the escalade and often found myself flung back into the ditch i met m de villel first at the duchesse de levis he became the leader of the royalist opposition in the elective chamber as i was in the hereditary chamber he had as a friend his colleague m de corbiere the latter never left his side and people used to speak of villel and corbiere as they speak of orestes and pylades or euryalus and nisus to enter into fastidious details about persons whose names one will not know to-morrow would be an idiotic vanity obscure and tedious commotions which one considers of immense interest and which interests nobody bygone intrigues which have decided no important event should be left to those devoutly happy persons who imagine themselves to be or to have been the object of the world's attention nevertheless there were proud moments in which my contentions with m de villel seemed to me personally like the dissensions of sulla and marius of caesar and pompey together with the other members of the opposition we went pretty often to spend the evening in deliberation and monsieur piet's in the rue therese we arrived looking extremely ugly and sat down round a room lighted by a flaring lamp in this legislative fog we talked of the bill introduced of the motion to be made of the friend to be pushed into the secretaryship the questorship the different committees we were not unlike the assemblies of the early christians as depicted by the enemies of the faith we broached the worst news we said that things were going to turn that rome would be troubled by divisions that our armies would be routed m de villel listened summed up and drew no conclusions he was a great aid in business a prudent mariner he never put to sea in a storm and though he would cleverly enter a known harbour he would never have discovered the new world i often observed in the matter of our discuss i often observed in the matter of our discussions concerning the sale of the goods of the clergy that the best christians among us were the most eager in defence of the constitutional doctrines religion is the wellspring of liberty in rome the flamen dialis wore only a hollow ring on his finger because a solid ring had something of a chain in his clothing and on his headdress the pontiff of jupiter was forbidden to suffer a single knot 
After the sitting, M. de Villèle would go away, accompanied by M. de Corbière. I studied many personalities. I learnt many things. I occupied myself with many interests at those meetings. Finance, which I always understood, the army, justice, administration, initiated me into their several elements. I left those conferences somewhat more of a statesman and somewhat more persuaded of the poverty of all that knowledge. Throughout the night, between sleeping and waking, I saw the different attitudes of the bald heads, the different expressions of the faces of those untidy and ungainly solons. It was all very venerable, truly, but I preferred the swallow which woke me in my youth, and the muses who filled my dreams, the rays of the dawn which, striking a swan, made the shadows of those white birds fall upon a golden billow, the rising sun which appeared to me in Syria in the stem of a palm-tree, like the phoenix nest, pleased me more. I felt that my fighting in the tribune, in a closed chamber, and in the midst of an assembly which was unfavourable to me, remained useless to victory, and that I required another weapon. The censorship being established over the periodical daily newspapers, I could fulfil my object only by means of a free semi-daily paper, with the aid of which I would at once attack the system of the ministers and the opinions of the extreme left printed in the Minerve by M. Etienne. I was staying at Noiselle with Madame la Duchesse de Lévis in the summer of 1818, when my publisher, M. Lenormand, came to see me. I told him of the ideas which I had in mind. He caught fire, offered to run all risks, and undertook all expenses. I spoke to my friends, M. de Bonal and de la Menée, and asked them if they would take part. They agreed, and the paper was not long in appearing under the title of the Conservateur. The revolution worked by this paper was unexampled. In France it changed the majority in the chambers. Abroad it converted the spirit of the cabinets. In this way the royalists owed to me the advantage of issuing from the state of nullity into which they had fallen with peoples and kings. I put the pen into the hands of France's greatest families. I decked out the Montmorencys and the Levies as journalists. I called out the Arrière-Bas. I made feudality march to the aid of the liberty of the press. I had got together the most brilliant men of the royalist party, Messieurs de Villel, de Corbière, de Vitrol, de Castelbajac, etc. I could not help blessing Providence every time that I spread the red robe of a prince of the church over the conservateur by way of a cover, and that I had the pleasure to read an article signed in full, the Cardinal de la Luzerne. But it came to pass that, after I had led my knights on the constitutional crusade, so soon as they had conquered power by their deliverance of liberty, so soon as they had become princes of Edessa, of Antioch, of Damascus, they locked themselves up in their new states with Eleanor of Aquitaine, and left me out in the cold at the foot of Jerusalem, where the infidels had recaptured the Holy Sepulchre. My polemical warfare began in the Conservateur and lasted from 1818 to 1820, that is to say, until the re-establishment of the censorship, for which the death of the Duke de Berry was the pretext. During this first period of my polemics, I upset the old ministry and placed M. de Villel in power. After 1824, when I again took up my pen in pamphlets and in the Journal des Débats, the positions were changed. And yet, what did those futile trifles matter to me, who had never believed in the time in which I lived, to me who belonged to the past, to me who had no faith in kings, no conviction with regard to the peoples, to me who have never troubled about anything except dreams, and then only on condition that they lasted but a night? The first article in the Conservateur describes the position of things at the moment when I entered the lists. During the two years for which the paper lasted, 
I had successively to treat of accidents of the day and to examine interests of importance. I had occasion to criticise the dastardliness of that private correspondence which the Paris police was publishing in London. This private correspondence might calumniate, but could not dishonour. That which is base has not the power of debasing. Honour alone is able to inflict dishonour. Anonymous calumniators, I said, have the courage to say who you are. A little shame is soon over. Add your names to your articles. It will be only one contemptible word the more. I used sometimes to laugh at the ministers, and I gave vent to that ironical propensity which I have always reproved in myself. Finally, under date 5th December 1818, the Conservateur contained a serious article on the morality of interests and on that of duty. It was this article which made a stir that gave birth to the phrase of moral interests and material interests, first put forward by me and subsequently adopted by everybody. Here it is, much abridged. It rises above the compass of a newspaper, and it is one of my works to which my reason attaches some value. It has not age, because the ideas which it contains are of all time. The ministry has invented a new morality, the morality of interests. That of duties is abandoned to fools. Now this morality of interests, of which it is proposed to make the groundwork of our government, has done more to corrupt the people in a space of three years than the revolution in a quarter of a century. That which destroys morality in the nations, and, with that morality, the nations themselves, is not violence, but seduction. And by seduction I mean all that is flattering and specious in any false doctrine. Men often mistake error for truth, because each faculty of the heart or the mind has its false image. Coldness resembles virtue, reasoning resembles reason, emptiness resembles depth, and so on. The eighteenth century was a destructive century. We were all seduced. We distorted politics, we strayed into guilty innovations, while seeking a social existence in the corruption of our morals. The revolution came to rouse us. In pushing the Frenchman out of his bed, it flung him into the tomb. Nevertheless, the reign of terror is perhaps, of all the epochs of the revolution, that which was least dangerous to morality, because no conscience was forced. Crime appeared in all its frankness. Orgies in the midst of blood, scandals that ceased to be so by dint of being horrible, that is all. The women of the people came and worked at their knitting round the murder machine as round their firesides. The scaffolds were the public morals, and death the foundation of the government. Nothing was clearer than the position of every one. There was no talk of speciality, nor of practicality, nor of a system of interests. That balderdash of little minds and bad consciences was unknown. They said to a man, You are a royalist, a nobleman, rich, die. And he died. Antonel wrote that no count had been found against certain prisoners, but that he had condemned them as aristocrats, a monstrous frankness which, notwithstanding, allowed moral order to subsist. For society is not ruined by killing the innocent as innocent, but by killing him as guilty. Consequently, those hideous times are times of great acts of self-devotion. Then women went heroically to the scaffold. Fathers gave themselves up for their sons, sons for their fathers. Unexpected assistance was introduced into the prisons, and the priest who was being hunted consoled the victim by the side of the executioner who failed to recognise him. Morality, under the directory, had to combat the corruption of morals, rather than of doctrines. Licence prevailed. Men were hurled into pleasures as they had been heaped up in the prisons. They forced the present to advance joys on the future, in the fear of seeing a revival of the past. Every man, not having yet had time to create himself a home, 
lived in the street, on the public walks, in the public rooms. Familiarised with the scaffolds and already half cut off from the world, they did not think it worth the trouble to go indoors. There was question only of arts, balls, fashions. People changed their ornaments and clothes as readily as they would have stripped themselves of their lives. Under Bonaparte the seduction commenced again, but it was a seduction that carried its own remedy. Bonaparte seduced by means of the spell of glory, and all that is great carries a principle of legislation within itself. He conceived that it was useful to allow the doctrine of all peoples to be taught, the morality of all times, the religion of eternity. I should not be surprised to hear someone reply, to base society upon a duty is to build it on a fiction, to place it in an interest is to establish it in a reality. Now it is precisely duty which is a fact and interest a fiction. Duty, which takes its source in the Godhead, descends first into the family, where it establishes a real affinity between the father and the children. From there, passing into society and dividing into two branches, in the political order it rules the relations of the king and the subject, in the moral order it establishes the tie of service and protection, of benefits and gratitude. Duty is therefore a most positive fact, since it gives to human society the only lasting existence that the latter can have. Interest, on the contrary, is a fiction, when it is taken as people take it to-day, in its physical and rigorous sense, since it is no longer in the evening what it was in the morning, since it changes its nature at each moment, since founded on fortune it has fortune's fickleness. By the morality of interest every citizen is at enmity with the laws and the government, because in society it is always the great number that suffers. People do not fight for abstract ideas of order, of place, of the motherland, or, if they fight for them, it is because they attach ideas of sacrifice to them. Then they emerge from the morality of interest to enter into that of duty. So true is it that the existence of society is not to be found outside that sacred limit. He who does his duty gains esteem. He who yields to his interest is but little esteemed. It was very like the century to draw a principle of government from a source of contempt. Bring up politicians to think only of what affects them, and you shall see how they will dress out the state. By that means you will have only corrupt and hungry ministers, like those mutilated slaves who govern the lower empire, and who sold all, remembering that they themselves had been sold. Mark this. Interests are powerful only so long as they prosper. When times are harsh, they become enfeebled. Duties, on the contrary, are never so energetic as when they are painful to fulfil. When times are good, they grow lax. I like a principle of government which grows great in misfortune. That greatly resembles virtue. What can be absurder than to cry to the people, Do not be devoted. Have no enthusiasm. Think only of your interests. It is as though one were to say to them, Do not come to our assistance. Abandon us, if such be your interest. With this profound policy, when the hour of devotion shall have come, each one will shut his door, go to the window, and watch the monarchy pass. Such was his article on the morality of interest and the morality of duty. On the 3rd of December, 1819, I again mounted the tribune of the Chamber of Peers. I raised my voice against the bad Frenchmen who were able to give us as a motive for tranquillity the watchfulness of the European armies. Had we need of guardians? Were they still going to talk of circumstances? Were we again, by means of diplomatic notes, to receive certificates of good conduct? And should we not only have changed a garrison of Cossacks for a garrison of ambassadors? From that time forward I spoke of the foreigners as I have since spoken of them in the Spanish War. I was thinking of our delivery at a moment when even the Liberals contended with me. 
men opposing opinion make a deal of noise to attain silence let a few years arrive and the actors will descend from the stage and the audience no longer be there to hiss or applaud them i had gone to bed on the evening of the thirteenth of february when the marquis de vibray came in to me to tell me of the assassination of the duke de berry in his haste he did not tell me the place where the event had occurred i dressed hurriedly and stepped into m de vibray's carriage i was surprised to see the coachman take the rue de richelieu and still more astonished when he stopped at the opera the crowd about the approaches was immense we went up between two lines of soldiers through the side door on the left and as we were in our peers coats we were allowed to pass we came to a sort of little ante-room the space was obstructed with all the people of the palace i pushed my way as far as the door of a box and found myself face to face with m le duc d'orleans i was struck with an ill-disguised expression of jubilation in his eyes across the contract countenance which he assumed he saw the throne near at hand my glance embarrassed him he left the spot and turned his back to me around me they were telling the details of the crime the man's name the conjectures of the different participants in the arrest they were excited busy men love anything theatrical especially death when it is the death of one of the great each person who came out of the blood-stained laboratory was asked for news they heard general a de girardin relate how having been left for dead on the battlefield he had nevertheless recovered from his wounds this one was hoping and consoling himself that other was repining soon contemplation overcame the crowd a silence fell from the inside of the box came a dull sound i held my ear laid to the door i distinguished a rattle the sound ceased the royal family had received the last breath of a grandson of louis quatorze i entered at once let the reader picture to himself an empty playhouse after the catastrophe of a tragedy the curtain raised the orchestra deserted the lights extinguished the machinery motionless the scenery fixed and smoke blackened the actors the singers the dancers vanish through the trap-doors and secret passages i have in a separate work given the life and death of m le duc de berry my reflections made at that time are still true to-day a son of st louis the last scion of the elder branch escapes the crosses of a long banishment and returns to his country he begins to taste happiness he indulges the hope of seeing himself revive of at the same time seeing the monarchy revive in the children that god promises him suddenly he is struck down in the midst of his hopes almost in the arms of his wife he is going to die and he is not full of years might he not accuse heaven ask it why it treats him with such severity ah how pardonable it would have been in him to complain of his destiny for after all what harm did he do he lived familiarly among us in perfect simplicity mingled in our pleasures and assuaged our pains already six of his relations have perished why murder him also why seek out him innocent him so far from the throne twenty-seven years after the death of louis says let us learn to know better the heart of a bourbon that heart all pierced by the dagger was not able to find a single murmur against us not one regret for life not one bitter word was uttered by the prince a husband son father and brother a prey to every anguish of the mind to every suffering of the body he does not cease to ask pardon for the man whom he does not even call his assassin the most impetuous becomes suddenly the gentlest character it is a man attached to existence by every tie of the heart it is a prince in the flower of his youth it is the heir to the fairest kingdom on earth that is dying and you would think that it was a poor wretch who loses nothing here below
The murderer Lavelle was a little man with a dirty and sorry face, such as one sees by the thousand on the Paris streets. He had something of the cur. He had a snarling and solitary air. It is probable that Lavelle was not a member of any society. He was one of a sect, not of a plot. He belonged to one of those conspiracies of ideas, the members of which may sometimes come together, but most frequently act one by one, according to their individual impulse. His brain fed on a single thought, even as a heart slakes its thirst on a single passion. His act was consequent upon his principles. He would have liked to kill the whole dynasty at one blow. Louvel has his admirers, even as Robespierre has his. Our material society, the accomplice of every material enterprise, soon destroyed the chapel raised in expiation of a crime. We abhor moral sentiment, because in it we behold the enemy and the accuser. Tears would have appeared a recrimination. We were in a hurry to deprive a few Christians of a cross to weep at. On the 18th of February, 1820, the conservateur paid the tribute of its regrets to the memory of Monsieur le Duc de Berry. The article concluded with this verse of Racine's, Si du sang de nos rois, quelques gouttes échappées. Alas, that drop of blood now flows away on foreign soil. Monsieur de Cartes fell. The censorship followed, and notwithstanding the assassination of the Duc de Berry, I voted against it. The conservateur refusing to be soiled by it, that paper came to an end, with the following apostrophe to the Duc de Berry. O Christian prince, worthy son of St. Louis, illustrious scion of so many kings, before descending into your last resting-place, receive our last homage. You loved, you read a work which the censorship is about to destroy. You sometimes told us that that work was saving the throne. Alas, we were not able to save your days. We are about to cease to write at the moment when you cease to exist. We shall have the sorrowful consolation of connecting the end of our labours with the end of your life. Monsieur le Duc de Bordeaux saw the light on the 29th of September, 1820. The newborn was called the child of Europe and the child of miracle, while waiting to become the child of exile. Some time before the princess' confinement, three market women of Bordeaux, in the name of all the ladies of their companions, had a cradle made, and chose me to present them, their cradle, and themselves, to Madame la Duchesse de Berry. Madame d'Aste, Duranton, and Aniche came to see me. I hastened to ask the gentleman in attendance for a ceremonial audience. Suddenly Monsieur de Sers thought that this honour was his by right. It was said that I should never succeed at court. I was not yet reconciled with the ministry, and I did not seem worthy of the office of introducer of my humble ambassadresses. I got out of this great negotiation, as usual, by paying their expenses. All this became an affair of state. The pother found its way into the papers. The Bordeaux ladies were aware of this, and wrote me the following letter on the subject. Bordeaux, 24th October, 1820. Monsieur le Vicomte, we owe you our thanks for the kindness which you have had to lay our joy and our respects at the feet of Madame la Duchesse de Berry. This time at least you will not have been prevented from being our interpreter. We heard with the greatest concern of the stir which Monsieur le Comte de Cesse has made in the newspapers, and if we have kept silence it is because we fear to give you pain. Still, Monsieur le Vicomte, none is better able than yourself to do homage to truth and to undeceive Monsieur de Cesse as to our real intentions in our choice of an introducer to Her Royal Highness. We make you the offer to state all that has passed in a newspaper of your own choosing, and, as no one has the right to choose a guide for us, and, as we had been pleased to think until the last moment that you would be that guide, what we shall state in this respect will necessarily silence all tongues. That is what we have determined upon, Monsieur le Vicomte, but we thought it our duty to do nothing without your consent. 
rely upon it that we will most gladly publish the handsome way in which you behave towards everybody in the matter of our presentation if we are the cause of the mischief we are quite ready to redress it we are and always shall be monsieur le vicomte your most humble and most respectful servants wives d'aste duranton aniche i replied to these generous ladies who were so unlike the great ladies i thank you my dear ladies for the offer you make me to publish in a newspaper all that has happened with regard to monsieur de Sez. you are excellent royalists and i also am a good royalist we must remember before all that monsieur de Sez is an honourable man and that he has been the defender of our king that fine action is not wiped out by a little movement of vanity so let us keep silence i am content with your good accounts of me to your friends i have already thanked you for your excellent fruits madame de chateaubriand and i eat your chestnuts every day and talk of you now permit your host to embrace you my wife sends you a thousand messages and i remain your servant and friend chateaubriand paris second november eighteen twenty but who thinks of these futile discussions to-day the joys and feasts of the christening are far behind us when henry was born on michaelmas day did not people say that the archangel was going to trample the dragon underfoot it is to be feared on the contrary that the flaming sword was drawn from its scabbard only to drive out the innocent from the earthly paradise and to guard its gates against him however the events which were becoming complicated determined nothing yet the assassination of monsieur le duc de berry had brought about the fall of monsieur de Caz, which was not effected without heart-breakings monsieur le duc de richelieu would not consent to afflict his aged master save on a promise from monsieur Molay to give monsieur de Caz a mission abroad he set out for the embassy in london where i was to replace him nothing was finished m de villel remained in seclusion with his fatality m de corbiere i on my side offered a great obstacle madame de montcalm never ceased urging me towards quiet i was much inclined for it sincerely wishing only to retire from public life which encroached upon me and for which i entertained a sovereign contempt m de villel although more supple was not at that time easy to deal with there are two ways to become a minister one abruptly and by force the other by length of time and by dexterity the first was not from m de villel's use craftiness excludes energy but is safer and less liable to lose the ground which it has gained the essential point in this manner of arriving is to accept many blows and to be able to swallow a quantity of bitter pills m de talleyrand made great use of this dietary of second-rate ambitions men generally rise to office through their mediocrity and remain there through their superiority this conjunction of antagonistic elements is the rarest thing and it is for that reason that there are so few statesmen m de villel had precisely the commonplace qualities that cleared the ground for him he allowed noise to be made around him in order to gather the fruits of the alarm that caught hold of the court sometimes he would deliver warlike speeches in which however a few phrases allowed a glimmer of hope to pass of the existence of an approachable nature i thought that a man of his stamp ought to commence by entering public life no matter how and in a not too alarming position it seemed to me that what he needed was first to be a minister without portfolio in order one day to obtain the premiership itself that would give him a reputation for moderation he would be dressed exactly to suit him it would become evident that the parliamentary leader of the opposition was not an ambitious man since he consented to make himself so small in the interests of peace any man who has once been a minister no matter by what right becomes one again a first ministry is a stepping-stone to the second 
the individual who has worn the embroidered coat retains a smell of portfolio by which the officers find him again sooner or later madame de montcalm had told me from her brother that there was no longer any ministry vacant but that if my two friends were willing to enter the council as ministers of state without portfolio the king would be charmed promising something better later she added that if i consented to go so far i should be sent to berlin i answered that that made no difference that for myself i was always ready to leave and that i would go to the devil in the event of the king's having any mission to their cousin to fulfil but that i would not however accept exile unless m de villele accepted his entrance into the council i should also have liked to place m lenné with my two friends i took the treble negotiation upon myself i had become the master of political france through my own powers few people doubt that it was i who made m de villele's first ministry and who drove the mayor of toulouse into the arena i found an invincible obstinacy in m lenné's character m de corbière did not want to become a mere member of the council i flattered him with the hope of also obtaining the public instruction m de villele giving way only with repugnance to my desires at first raised a thousand objections his good wits and his ambition at last decided him to set forward everything was arranged here are the irrefutable proofs of what i have just related wearisome documents of those little facts which have justly passed into oblivion but useful to my own history twentieth december half past three to monsieur le duc de richelieu i have had the honour to call on you monsieur le duc to report on the state of things all is going admirably I have seen the two friends. Villel at last consents to enter the council as minister-secretary of state without portfolio, if Corbière consents to enter on the same terms with the directorship of public instruction. Corbière, on his side, is willing to enter on those conditions, provided Villel approves. And so there are no difficulties left. Complete your work, Monsieur le Duc. See the two friends, and when you have heard what I am writing to you from their own mouths, you will restore to France her internal peace even as you have given her peace with the foreigners. Permit me to submit one more idea to you. Would you think it very inconvenient to make over to Villel the directorship vacant through the retirement of M. de Barant? He would then be placed in a more equal position with his friend. Still, he told me positively that he would consent to enter the council without portfolio if Corbier had the public instruction. I say this only as a means the more of completely satisfying the royalists and of ensuring for yourself an immense and steady majority. I will lastly have the honour of pointing out to you that the great royalist meeting takes place tomorrow evening at Pietz, and that it would be very useful if the two friends could tomorrow evening say something which would calm any effervescence and prevent any division. As I, Monsieur le Duc, am outside all this movement, you will, I hope, see in my assiduity no more than the loyalty of a man who desires his country's good and your successes. Pray accept, Monsieur le Duc, the assurance of my high regard, Chateaubriand wednesday i have just written to monsieur de villele and de corbiere monsieur and i have asked them to call on me this evening for one must not lose a moment in so useful a piece of work i thank you for having pushed on the business so rapidly i hope that we shall come to a happy conclusion be persuaded monsieur of the pleasure i feel at owing you this obligation and receive the assurance of my high regard richelieu permit me monsieur le duc to congratulate you on the happy issue of this great business and to applaud myself for having had some part in it. It is very desirable that the order should appear tomorrow. They will put a stop to all opposition. I can be of use to the two friends in this respect. I have the honour, Monsieur le Duc, to renew to you the assurance of my high regard, Chateaubriand.
Friday. I have received with extreme pleasure the note which Monsieur le Vicomte de Chateaubriand has done me the honour to write to me. I believe that he will have no cause to regret having trusted to the King's goodness, and, if he will permit me to add, to the desire which I have to contribute to whatever may be agreeable to him. I beg him to receive the assurance of my high regard. Richelieu. Thursday. You are doubtless aware, my noble colleague, that the business was settled at eleven o'clock yesterday evening, and that all is arranged on the terms agreed between yourself and the Duc de Richelieu. Your intervention has been most useful to us. Let thanks be given you for this preliminary step towards an improvement which must henceforth be looked upon as probable. Ever yours for life, J. de Polignac. Paris, Wednesday, 20th December, half-past eleven at night. I have just called on you, noble Viscount, but you had retired. I have come from Villel, who himself returned late from the conference which you prepared for him, and told him of. He asked me, as your nearest neighbour, to let you know, that Corbière also wished to tell you, on his side, that the affair which you really conducted and managed during the day is definitely settled in the simplest and shortest manner. He without portfolio, his friend with the instruction. He seemed to think that one might have waited a little longer and obtained better conditions, but it was not seemly to gainsay an interpreter and negotiator like yourself. It is you, really, who have opened the entrance to this new career to them. They reckon on you to make it smooth for them. Do you, on your side, during the short time that we shall still have the advantage of keeping you among us, speak to your more spirited friends, to second, or at least not to oppose, the plans for union. Good night. I once more make you my compliment on the promptness with which you conduct negotiations. You must settle Germany in the same way, so as to return sooner to the midst of your friends. I personally am delighted to see your position so much simplified. I renew all my sentiments to you, Monsieur de Montmorency. I enclose, Monsieur, a request addressed by one of the King's bodyguards to the King of Prussia. It has been handed to me and recommended by a field officer of the guards. I beg you, therefore, to take it with you and to make use of it, if, when you have felt your ground a little in Berlin, you think that it is of a nature to obtain some success. I have great pleasure in taking this occasion to congratulate myself, as well as you, on this morning's monitor, and to thank you for the part which you have taken in this fortunate issue, which, I hope, will have the happiest influence on the affairs of our France. Pray receive the assurance of my high regard and of my sincere attachment. Pasquier. This series of notes is sufficient evidence that I am not boasting. It would bore me too much to be the fly on the coach. The pole or the coachman's nose are not places where I have ever had any ambition to sit. Whether the coach reaches the top or rolls to the bottom matters little to me. Accustomed to live hidden in my own recesses, or momentarily in the wide life of the centuries, I had no taste for the mysteries of the antechamber. I do not enter readily into circulation like a piece of current money. To escape, I withdraw myself nearer to God. A fixed idea that comes from heaven isolates you and kills everything around you. End of Book 7